0: Bibles. Well, you really don't have to open up your Bibles. First, what I, you can, it's going to be in the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to be Matthew chapter 5, but I'm going to be, there, there have been many of you that have said to me in the past, we kind of like the history that you bring. Well, guess what, you're going to get a whole, a whole message of it. Because what I'm, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm going to be giving you stuff that is not in the Bible, I'm going to be trying to connect it to the Bible but I'm going to be giving you a whole lot of stuff that is historical and background. It has a bearing on the setting where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Because we can go to the Sermon on the Mount and say it took place at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and there's three cities, Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, and we can tell you that, and you go, okay, okay, we got it. But it doesn't give you a flavor of what was going on at the time Jesus was there. To put it real succinctly, it was a religious and a political mess. It was just a mess. So I want to give you that flavor so that you'll know what that's like. So what I'll be referring to quite often is the map that you hopefully got when you came in. I'm going to be referring to that map a lot today, and hopefully we got one that's more readable. And Vaughn, would you make sure this lady that walked in gets a map? She just walked in. The, uh, what, what I'm going to do, what I did last week is I talked about four separate political groups and there was maybe a fifth if you wanted to take a fifth. Uh, and I'm going to review those really quickly so those of you that weren't here can kind of be up to speed. There was, first of all, there was the Sadducees or the Herodians. The Sadducees and the Herodians occupied the area and if, if the Sea of Galilee is a clock, the top of the Sea of Galilee is 12 o'clock. The bottom is 6 o'clock, and you can figure it out from there how the hands go. Well, the the Sadducees and the Herodians were from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock. That was kind of generally their area, 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock. The Sadducees did not believe in angels. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Herodians were pro-Herod. They were pro-Herod because they figured it would, it would expedite, it would further their cause if the Romans were friendly to them and their cause was generally making money. It is believed that the Sadducees and the Herodians were the ones that were cast out of the temple. When Jesus cast the money changers out of the temple, they were the ones in charge of the temple. They were in charge of the high priest and they had a lot of money. And usually where there was money was where the Sadducees and the Herodians were. If you move on from 10 o'clock to about noon on your little dial on, on Sea of Galilee, that's going to be the Pharisees. Pharisees were very legalistic. Jesus had some of his harshest, harshest words for the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hated each other. Except, Scripture tells us in Mark that the Pharisees, they, they sided up with the Herodians because they had one thing in common, is they hated Jesus and they wanted to get rid of him. So they became friends strictly because of their hatred for Jesus. If you took the next little spot from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock, that was generally known as the Zealot area. And the Zealot area, I talked about a city last week. uh, It was called Gamla. Gamla is in, it's about 3 o'clock on your dial, somewhere in there. It's called Gamala or Gamla. It's right in there. And I, I gave a story about how the Romans tried to conquer Gamla and they did, and how thousands of Jews threw themselves and their grandkids off of the wall just because they didn't want to get captured by the Romans and be in slavery. Because, you see, the, the zealots had a, a, you might say, a law among themselves. They said God equals the government, and the only government they would accept was God. That left Rome out, okay? Only God could tax This is a zealot question. Pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. That was a zealot question. Who do we we pay taxes? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? That's a zealot question. In other words, Jesus, do you think that the Roman government is legitimate? The third one is death rather than slavery for a zealot. Hence, they had the city of Gamla and Masada. We're going to talk about Masada in just a little bit right after this. One more. The, the zealots embrace the notion that violence will help the Messiah come. So they were a nasty bunch. I mean, they, when you have zeal and zealots, oh, they, yeah, they did that. Now, I told you last week that the battle cry of the zealots was Hosanna. That was the battle cry of the, of the zealots, and the symbol for the zealots was the palm branch. So it is believed in Mark chapter 10 that the crowd was filled with zealots, and they were hoping like crazy that this was going to be the beginning of Jesus Christ being their king to free them from Rome. So what I'm trying, I'm trying to do is impress on you the, the uh, political and religious flavor of the area. Now I want to give you a Reader's Digest version of what Masada was. Masada was what is described as, as a lozenge-shaped table mountain that is lofty, isolated, and to all appearances impregnable. Last year, when Sal and I went to Israel, we went to the top of Masada. There's only one way to well, then there was only one way to get up to Masada, and it was a it was what was called the snake. It was a path that went like this back and forth and back and forth. And at the time that Masada was built by the Hasmoneans, we'll talk about them in a second, it was, it was a, uh, only one person could walk at a time. You couldn't walk two people a, a, a side by side going up the snake. So it would go up to this on one side, it was 1,300 feet down. On the other side, it was 300 feet down. So it's this tabletop mountain sitting way up there, and I have some pictures for you. I'll show you here in just a second. It was made by the Hasmoneans, uh, cultivated, made into a, a city, you might say, by the Hasmoneans, and that would be like saying the Vanderbilts built it or the Rockefellers or the Bill Gateses. They were just the ruling family or dynasty of the time. Well, it was, uh, it was built early, about the time of Christ, okay, when, when he came on the scene. And it was about 35 A.D. when Herod the Great, improved, he kind of took it over, and he improved it into a city because he wanted to have a place to go in the event people revolted. So he improved it, and then about 60ish, 65 A.D., the Zealots came along, and they were called the Sakari. They came in and they overcame the garrison at Masada, they took over the city, and the zealots were just as nasty to the Jewish people as they were to the Roman people, and the Jewish people threw out a bunch of them before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. They threw some out, so those outcasts went over to Masada and joined their ranks, and then when Herod destroyed the, the, the final temple, the second temple, then there was a bunch more that identified with the Zealots and the Sicarii, and they also went up to Masada, so that there ended up being 960 people up there. Now, part of the revolt, it took place before the temple was, was um, leveled, which was 70 A.D. So it was, it was a few years before that. Well, then it was about a, some say it was a four-year revolt, some say it was an eight-year revolt, but it was right around that time the Romans, they put siege to Masada and what they did and I have a picture of it here I'll run through the pictures here in a minute but during on, on, the, on the area of Masada that was about 300 feet down they had Jews Jews that's a key thing here they were the ones that moved thousands of tons of soil to fill in this valley so that they have a siege ramp going up to Masada and the, and it was what had happened is the Sakari or the zealots in Masada would not kill a fellow Jew. If it had been a Roman that was making the siege works, they'd have killed the Romans in a heartbeat. In fact, the, the people in Masada would torment the Romans because what, what it had, it was very ingenious, they had a system of duct works in, in uh, Masada that would catch rainwater and it, it'd fall into huge, huge cisterns. And you could see these cisterns. They were like an underground silo. They're just enormous. So when the Romans, they had to take every drop of water, they had to haul it in from far, far away because this Masada was by the Dead Sea, uh, hence dead, part of Dead Sea. There wasn't any water to drink, so they'd bring it in. Well, the, the Jews, they would take glasses of water and say, are you thirsty? And they'd throw it out over the wall to torment the Jews. Well, how badly do you think the Romans wanted to kill those Jews? Oh, buddy, they were no pun intended, thirsting to kill those Jews. <clears throat> they wanted them dead so bad. So the Zealots were equally antagonistic to both Romans and other Jewish groups. And what happened at about, oh, I don't know, during the same time, 70 AD, they, they took, they went from Masada, and if we're going to refer to your notes again. Masada is way down by the Dead Sea. Go down to that, that lake, way down at the bottom. It's on the Mediterranean side. About three-quarters of the way down, you'll see there is Masada. Well, that was the area where David hid from Saul because if you see just a a quarter of an inch above it, you see En Gedi. Okay, that's where David was fleeing, and there's all kinds of caves around there, and you can live there because there's certain areas in those rugged mountains where water will come through the cracks, and it's like an oasis. So you can certainly live there if you know where to get the water. <clears throat> so Masada, the people there, would they went down to En the, the Sicari and the Zealots, and they raided the En area and they killed some 700 inhabitants. Well, that kind of triggered the Romans going down there and suppressing this uprising. <clears throat> so it took about, it took about three, three to four months somewhere in there, for the siege works to be made. And when the Romans finally came over the crest of the city, there was nobody there. Maybe many of you have heard the story. I find it to be very fascinating. The reason we know the story of what happened in Masada is because there was two women and five children hiding in a cistern. So they lived. But everybody else, there was 960 of them, and you figure five, what have we got I don't know, two children and five kids, so there's seven, so there's, do the math, 955, 953 people were dead. Now, this is the difficulty, is in Judaism, there is a prohibition against committing suicide. So what they did is they took the leaders of the Sakari slash zealots, and they cast lots. And whoever was given the lot was the last person to die. So if we had 12 men up here, you would kill your family, you would kill whoever was assigned to you, and then of the 12, the one who got the lot, he would kill the other 11. So only one person out of the remaining 953 would commit suicide because it was prohibited in Judaism. So you had one person would kill the, the, the 11 leaders or whomever and then would would take his own life. And they did. And we would not know this story except there was two women and five kids that were in the cistern. And they said, this is what was said by the leader of the the Sicarii before they killed themselves. Since we long ago resolved never to be servants to the Romans, nor to any other than to God himself, who alone is the true and just Lord of mankind, The time has now come that obliges us to make that resolution true in practice. We were the very first that revolted, and we are the last to fight against them. And I cannot but esteem it as a favor that God has granted us that it is still in our power to die bravely and in a state of freedom. To this day, when you finish boot camp in Israel, the candidates go up to Masada, and they say, Never again will Masada fall. I want you to have a flavor for the radicalism that Jesus was confronting whenever he gave his teachings, or whether he did his miracles, or he gave his Sermon on the Mount. These are radical people. They are so radical, they'll kill their grandkids, their kids, their wife, their friends. They will do it, I mean, this is radicalism on steroids. And for one sect, we have the Sadducees and Herodians, the Pharisees, and the Zealots. And we're going to talk about the Decapolis here in just a little bit. But here are some of the pictures. Let's see. Trying. What do you think, Steve? Oh, ha-ha. Sure, it's turned on. (laughs) Sure, thank you. Okay, and uh, we're going to do the little pointer here. There it is. Okay. This, this is an er- the area where they kind of lived. This was where they'd do crops and stuff like this. They'd have like a synagogue and stuff over here. This is just the tail end of the siege work. Sal and I were in there, and it, it was a cool, what we would call a cool day by our standards. Macaroni was it hot up there. And that was a relatively cool day because it's, it's way up there. Now, these, there's a house here, there's a house here, and there's a house here. And that is the improved dwellings that Herod made. So that when Herod went there, he had a million-dollar view, and it was right along the side. So there's Herod. That's the the three places that he would switch from one to the other. When you looked out those porticos, you could see for 100 miles, and you're virtually 1,300 feet high, and there is nobody that's going to touch you. The next one. There's there's a dist- more distant view of what it looks like. You can see the steep, steep hillsides. I mean it, you're not gonna climb up there. So what the Romans did is they came around here, and wouldn't you know what? the battery started to die, and it did. Is you can see the siege works there on the right. So they that that is where the Romans eventually they brought in tons and tons and tons of of stuff. If you have this, that'd be great. I don't know how long it'll take, but that's all right. They have tons and tufts of stuff. Steve, if you can go to the next the next uh, slide, please. This is called the snake. And now, it is improved for modern terms. They put some concrete in there and railings and stuff like that. But generally, you can see it goes back and forth. You either walk that way, which people did, and they would walk up one way, and that was okay, but to walk back was really the pits, because you, you'd be dehydrated. And you, I mean, there's not a lot of water up there, even for tourists. But they, what we took was a gondola that takes it right up to the top of the railing. Oh, yeah. You, you see how far it is to walk. You go, I'm taking that gondola. I'm not messing around with this. The next slide. There's not Okay, then we go to the next one. We're going to be talking about this next. You can leave it there. I'm going to be there for a little while. If you're going to be looking at, and I'm encouraging you to look on your map, and you're going to see at, at uh, 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock, you're going to see in great big letters Decapolis, Decapolis. You can see it right right, uh, south of the Sea of Galilee. Great big letters, Decapolis. Decapolis is, by definition, Deca is ten, Polis is city, ten cities. And what had happened is we all know historically that Alexander the Great conquered the then known world. And he he fought, and he fought, and he fought, and he conquered everybody until virtually everything that he wanted conquered was conquered. Well, the other side of this is his soldiers were tired. They had been fighting for years, and they were tired of not being at home, having a family, being with their wife and their kids, maybe raising some cattle. They were tired. So as a reward to many of the soldiers, Alexander the Great gave tracts of land in the Decapolis area and 10 cities were brought up there these were non-jews they were pagans they were absolutely pagans they worshiped a god by the name of pan p a n pan, pan. <coughs> the the it was thoroughly a jew a, a non-jewish rather a greek culture in the decapolis area thoroughly thoroughly uh, a, a greek culture well Hold that thought right there, okay? I'm, I'm gonna, I just told you all that information. I'm going to go over here for a minute, and I'm going to tie these two together. There is a rabbinical tradition that when the Israelites began to conquer the land of Canaan, and after the land of Canaan was conquered, there were seven tribes of Canaanites who moved from the northern Mediterranean side of Israel. They moved to the Decapolis area. That is rabbinical tradition. And what we find very interesting is when you look in, and I can tell you the, the passage, <clears throat> when you look at Mark chapter eight, in fact, Mark chapter 7 verse 31, says that Jesus was in the Decapolis area. It says it right there, Mark 7:31. But Mark 7, or Mark 8 talks about Jesus being in that particular region where he fed the 4,000, okay? And here is your trivia question for the day. If you can do this one, you're doing way better than me. If Jesus fed the 4,000 in the Decapolis area, how many baskets of leftovers did they take? That's a real trivia question. They took, here's an easy way to remember it, they took seven because that region was called by the rabbis, the land of seven for the seven Canaanite tribes that moved from the northern part of the Canaan area by the Mediterranean Sea. They moved over to the Decapolis region, and there they lived, and it was called the Land of Seven. So if you were to check in your Bibles, and you don't have to now, the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son says, I want my inheritance now, and if you check it, it does. I want my inheritance, and then he went to a distant country. It's believed that distant country was the Decapolis area because it was non-Jewish, it was pagan, the the sacred animal of the god Pan was a pig. Well, what did the prodigal, when he ran out of money, who who did he feed? He fed the pigs. They think that's that's where this young man went in the story, and it would it would say that the father got up this is adding to scripture by the way so it's not gospel but it seems very probable the father would get up and he would he could look out to a distant country and have his heart was longing for his son to come back because he could look out across the jordan river into the decapolis area this area that was greek pagan worship pagan gods <clears throat> so the decapolis area was that over there now On the other hand, when you have the Mediterranean side of the map, that was referred to as the Land of Twelve. You have the Land of Seven on the Decapolis side, the Land of Twelve was on the Mediterranean side, representing the Twelve Tribes of Israel. And Jesus also did a miracle there where he fed the 5,000. Having heard about the land of seven, how many leftover baskets do you think Jesus picked up or was picked up after that? Twelve. That's right. Twelve. And what is really interesting is the rabbis in in, in Israel think these are very significant and important numbers, but they still don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. (laughs) You kind of go, what? What? How is this? Now, that doesn't change our theology. It doesn't change anything about what we believe in the Bible. However, what it does give, give uh, importance to is Jesus took the time to go to a pagan, despicable area, and he perpo- performed a miracle there where he fed the 4,000. In, in that vein, I'm going to give you another story regarding when Jesus went 28 miles from the generally the area that he spent 75 to 90% of his time, they're not sure, but 75 to 90% of his time, was in the north end of the Sea of Galilee, Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. You can see they're all listed right there. It's like the triangle of Everson, Sumas, and Linden. He spent 75 to 90% of his time right there, and one day, he had him and his disciples, with Jesus leading the way, they head north. are going. Where are we going? Because from 10 o'clock to noon is the Pharisees. From noon to 2 o'clock is the Zealots. From 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock is the Decapolis area. And and, and folks, please understand, I think you do, but please understand those weren't defined lines. They were kind of wavy lines like this, and sometimes they'd, they'd intermingle and do whatever. And this is one of these intermingling types. If you look, if you look at uh, the legend on the side of your your map, you're going to see H three. H three is where the Mount Hermon is. If you look at H2, you're going to see a little a little place called Caesarea Philippi. Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. Okay? That's H2 for Caesarea Philippi. It's right there. You just got to locate it, in a bunch of little print. Jesus is walking up there Now, this is the story of Caesarea Philippi, and I'm not going to give you all of the details because it is inappropriate in a church to give the details that I'm going to skirt here in the next little bit. But Pan was the god of the Greek-speaking Greek culture Decapolis, and their headquarters was in a town called Caesarea Philippi, and if you look right next to it, you're going to see a little teeny town called Pandius for our English phrase of panic or pandemonium. Okay, that's where that comes from. I'm getting to the story, so you're you're laboring with me here. That's good. Just follow along. Is What had happened is in about 335, uh, 335 B.C., Alexander the Great came along to this place called Caesarea Philippi and he made a city right there. Sal and I were at this city too, we'll talk about what that means in just a minute. And at the base of Mount Hermon at Caesarea Philippi was this cave, and out of this cave was coming some water. To us that means absolutely nothing, to the ancients that meant a ton. So. uh, Alexander the Great in 335 B.C. made a town there and it became the center, the world center of pan-worship. This is what was believed. In the religion of the ancient world, it was believed that male and female gods had sexual relations. Now, I'm going to be talking about some things here that for a church is sketchy. And I know that but there's a reason I'm giving this to you. There, there's a reason I'm telling you this. Rain was the sperm, and the crops, lamb, and babies were the fruit. Then the gods went to the underworld, and it stopped raining, and along came the dry season. Hopefully, the gods would come back. In Greek, the underworld was called Hades, and in Hebrew, it was called Sheol. Okay? It is a dark, dreary, watery place, and it is under the earth. So whenever there was a body of water or water coming out of the ground, they said, that is the gates to the underworld, or that is the gates of Hades. That's what they thought at the time. Every year in the spring, the gods would go into the cave down to the underworld. If we worship them right, they would come back to us in the fall. They would have sexual relations, and we would have fertility, meaning we would have crops and animals, and things would be correct. The Canaanite gods were, there was Pan, and they think it merged with Asherah and Baal. So, when Alexander the Great came in about 330, 335 B.C., he built that uh, some buildings there, built a city there, and it was the world center for Pan worship. We could also we could liken it to this. The center of Catholic worship for the world is the Vatican. This was the same thing. The center for pan worship was in Caesarea Philippi. That's where it's the same, it's the same type of imagery that you're getting here. So the town was called Penius for Panic or or Pandemonium. And then it was changed to Caesarea. Well, they couldn't do Caesarea because Caesarea was already taken because there's a town by the name of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, coast, so they changed it to Caesarea Philippi. Okay, why did I give you all this information? Because it says in, in Matthew chapter 16, Peter's confession of Christ. And this is the setting where Jesus came in and where he was teaching. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, get this. Jesus is in the area, I call it the triangle. You've got Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, north end of the Sea of Galilee. And with his disciples, Jesus says, hey, we're going to go for a walk. And they go for 28 miles <whistles> straight to the most evil place in the known world. Jesus, what in the heck are you doing? Do you know where we're going? This is the most horrible place you could ever describe. And frankly, folks, I toned it way down because they had orgies, sacrifices, celebrations that we don't talk about whether it's in here or out there. It was a nasty, nasty place. And Jesus is walking straight for it. And it is believed that he was standing right in front of this cave, which was the center of pan worship because they call it a river was coming right out of this cave. Now, you and I in a watery, and a rainy country, we would say it's a nice creek. We would. It is not the Nooksack River, folks, let me tell you. It's, it's maybe from me to Fred wide and maybe about a foot deep, if that. Now, we may have been in the dry season. They call it a river. I call it just a little bathing pool. But for them, that's a lot of water, and that is the beginning of the Jordan River, it's right there. So they would, it is believed that Jesus was standing at or near, right there, and he says, who, is, who, do you, who do you people say that I am? Then he replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if I could editorialize on this, I'd say, The Christ, the Son of the living God, and certainly not this junk, Okay, adding that. Certainly not what we're looking at, Jesus. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, certainly not this. You've got to be kidding. Why are we here? Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound, in he- bound on earth, and whatever you bind in heaven will be bound in heaven. Does it make sense now that you have this passage where Jesus is basically saying, hey, this is the, the, the religion of the day. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The gates of Hades was exactly what the people believed the water coming out of the earth represented. And what we, do, what we are as a church is we are to go on the offense. This is not a, a defensive statement where we huddle up, and we hope that the gates of Hades will not prevail over us. It is an offensive statement where we are to attack the gates of Hades and they will fall. Our mission is to do something about the evil in the world. That is what this means. You go to the next picture. Please. There you go, that's just another picture of the same thing. It's just, it's just a big open cave, and it really doesn't go anywhere, and there's just water that's just seeping up out of the ground, and it was a major deal in its time. Next picture. This is, this is looking crossways from it. It's not a huge area, maybe an acre. I mean, we're not talking kingdom size here. It's just, it, it, and you can see the structures where the people are standing in the forefront. That was probably a temple to Augustus, then you had another structure in the back, that was a, a temple to, a, to the shrine of Pan. And then you went to the furthest one, and that was the shrine of the sacred goats because those goats that were there, they were sacred and they were handled with kid gloves. You one final picture. This is kind of an artist's rendition of what that may have looked like in years past. I can't emphasize enough to you that this was a major deal at the time of Jesus so Jesus is coming on the scene with the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about, blessed are the poor in spirit. And people are going, what? You've got to be kidding me. What are you talking about? I mean, you've got, you got the Sadducees and the Herodians. They're in it for the money. They don't believe in the, in the angels. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. You've got the Pharisees. They're legalists on steroids. They've got 630 laws that they're supposed to obey. And they're asking Jesus things like, should we pay taxes? should we pay taxes? Or what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? He says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor and love, your, love yourself. That isn't it. But love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. And second unto it is this, is love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that was the greatest commandment. That's the Pharisee question. So then you have the zealots. I told you about Gamla. I told you about the, the Masada. And he comes along cross-culturally and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning you don't have pride. You're not in this for you. You have humility. And they're going, what? Nobody in our region believes that. Nobody. Not a single person. It's all get what you can get because Rome is going to crush you, and if they don't crush you, the Jews, in whatever sect they may be, they're gonna get you as well. One other group I didn't bring up was the Essenes. The Essenes were a group that separate equals holy, and they were down in the En area, way down there by Masada. They were, they were loners, they were all by themselves. So, that gives you an idea of what it was like when Jesus came onto the scene. Now, when Jesus was, was first starting his ministry, and the Sermon on the Mount is the beginning of his first ministry, there was a lot. And there could have been like a couple dozen. You, you read various, various accounts of how many messiahs were out there, and they were trying to heal people. They're trying to do something else. I have a rather funny photo. Go ahead to the next one. So I tried some faith healing. So far, I've cured a ham. I thought that was kind of funny myself, so I thought I'd throw it in there. <laughs> Go to the next one. We're going to start on the uh, back of the bulletin, and I'm just going to try and get the, get the setting for this, is what you see on the, on the Sermon on the Mount is the people in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and he sat down, and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, or he, he opened up his mouth and said... First of all, the crowds are there and the disciples are there. Jesus is not teaching to the crowds. He is teaching to his disciples. The crowds are welcome to listen. They're welcome to be present. And I left it off last week by saying it is no different than we have a group of people in here that are listening to God's word. And some of you are believers and accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it is to you that I am primarily teaching but it is the people that are visitors, or maybe they're skeptics, they're doubters, they're seekers, or whatever you want to call them, but they have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Just like Jesus is preaching and teaching and welcoming the crowds to listen in, the same thing is here. We're teaching to believers, but if there is somebody in the audience, whether here or elsewhere, that is not. They are welcome to listen in, and we believe that the work of the Holy Spirit will prime or prick the heart of someone so that they will see their need for the Savior and hopefully come to him in repentance to be saved. So the primary thrust of this is, is Jesus is talking to the disciples and when it said he sat down, that means it was official. It's like the a, a chair of a professorship is a person has a chair, meaning it is an honored position, it's the same thing with the Pope. When he's standing, it is informal conversation. If the if the Pope takes the chair and then says something, then it is official proclamation. It's the same here. Is Jesus sat down? Therefore, the people would know whoa, he's going to give us something that is important. This is this is not just chit chat. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach. Or it says that he opened up his mouth. Where in for us that's that's extra verbiage. For them, that would have been necessary to say that now he is starting his teaching. And how does he start the teaching? By saying uh, the Beatitudes is Latin for happiness or blessedness. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first slide. Everything, this is not everything that Jesus taught. The Sermon on the Mount is going to give you a variety of things, and if they are rightly understood, the culture of our society would dramatically change. And we're going to, over the course of the next weeks, talk about what some of these mean. But the Sermon on the Mount does not contain everything that Jesus taught. This sermon is the first of five major teachings by Jesus. For example, this this Sermon on the Mount does not talk about love your neighbor. It doesn't talk about that at all but yet there is an obvious exchange with uh, the Pharisees regarding the greatest commandment. Okay? This, this doesn't talk about the greatest commandment, but yet Jesus has an exchange with the Pharisees. Hearing, it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees regarding angels and things like that, In Matthew 22, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Sermon on the Mount doesn't talk about loving your neighbor at all. So this doesn't cover everything that Jesus taught. It doesn't cover the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. It doesn't talk about the church. It doesn't talk about baptism or the Lord's Supper. These are all important things. Next picture. The sermon gives meaning to everyday discipleship. It is practical instruction, but it is not a set of rules to get God's approval. It's not, a, we're not taking a bunch of rules like the Pharisees would say and say, you're trying to obey these rules, we're going to take these rules and put them on the shelf and we're going to give you a new set of rules. No, he's not doing that. It's not a new set of rules, thank you. What, what up until this point, what the Jews, the common people had believed is getting to heaven was like climbing a ladder. It's I need to obey all these different rules and I keep climbing higher and higher and higher until I eventually get there, wherever there is, okay? But if you foul up on the rules, like the Pharisees would say, well, then you're knocked way down the ladder, and you had to kind of start over again. what is happening here is Jesus is just saying, all you have to do is repent and believe. And that was totally different from what they had been taught all along. It used to be gaining God's favor Now it was repent and believe and you're saved. So we already addressed who the sermon was written for. The sermon is not rules by which you gain God's favor. They're they're not a list of ideals. This is a list of goals. An ideal is something which hasn't got a really big chance of being reached. Uh, An example of an ideal is peace on earth, goodwill towards men. That's an ideal, but it doesn't have a very good chance of coming true. Now, a goal, on the other hand, is something unreached, but is reachable. It is unachieved, but it is achievable. You can get there. It's a set of principles by which we can live by. So, we have starts out with blessedness, and blessedness, the definition you could say of blessedness is blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessedness is a deep contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. It's a deep, settled contentedness that your life is right with God. you know that you have the approval of God. I'll leave that up there for just a second. Poor in spirit is the opposite of self-sufficiency. It speaks of deep humility of recognizing one's utter spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. It's recognizing that you are a sinner saved by grace. Now, there is an excellent exchange that took place between the... um, tax collector and the Pharisee, and it's written in Luke 18, it says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, and this is where the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, the absence of pride. Here's the tax collector. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be will be exalted. In our nation, in our culture, what we try to do is acquire more things, get more stuff, achieve more diplomas to give us happiness. It's doing what the world thinks to bring us satisfaction and happiness. That may mean money, fame, or power, but that is what the world says. And Jesus says, you know what? If you want to have a deep contentedness and approval of God, have humility. Get rid of your pride. And I think I have said it from this pulpit before, and I'll probably say it again because that's what happens when you get older, is there is only one sin in the Bible that God actively opposes. There's only one. And it's written, I believe, in James 1. It says, God opposes the proud. It's the only sin where it says God actively, he isn't passively, he is actively confronting someone. He opposes them if they are prideful. And that is why the first beatitude has to do with humility because that is the foundation of all the other ones. Pride has no place in God's kingdom. Not at all is we we see that the door to the kingdom, so to speak, so to speak, is low, and no one who stands tall will ever go through it. So I'm just about at the end. <clears throat> I want to leave you with a couple points. To know, how do you know when you're humble? Because some people like to brag about how humble they are. So how do you know when you're humble? Well, there's one in my mind, there's really one good way. There are numerous ways, but I'm not going to go through numerous ones because you've heard me go on long enough. There's one where you can really say you know when somebody is humble, and, they say, and it's in Philippians 2. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. And if you listen, whether it be to yourself, or to the speech of others when they get angry, and I was listening to of the other day, and somebody cut them off over here, and some line was slow at the grocery store, and getting gas, they wouldn't get out of this way, and it always was with I or me. It was always, they are in my way. They didn't yield to me. They didn't give me the service that I deserve. So if you want to know if you, have, you are poor in spirit, Do you have humility so that you are way okay with having others go first? It's okay. If this person wants to go slow and I'm in a hurry, it's okay, because that tells you really readily if you have a streak of pride or if I have a streak of pride in me. A person that has no pride will spend much time in prayer because just as a physical beggar begs for physical food, so a spiritual beggar pleads for the mercy of Christ. So, in closing, I want to put it this way. It is never possible to create true poverty of spirit by looking within or by looking around at other people because our heart is corrupt through and through. And this is what we do. We do this habitually, and I do just as well. You find someone who is prouder than you, and although you may still be quite proud, you congratulate yourself on being humble. Or you find someone who has strong fits of temper. And although you too have a temper, you will congratulate yourself on being more moderate in your temper than them. So it goes with all the failings that make you and I less perfect than Jesus Christ is we will find somebody who doesn't quite measure up. C.S. Lewis made this comment. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel like we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. I thought that was an excellent statement. Humility is the foundation of all other graces, and we will continue on the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. If only we would take the time to study it, to bring it out that you lived in an era that was not unlike ours. Is we have all different kinds of religious beliefs. We have really strong-minded people. We have different sects and they all want to pull us away from our devotion and allegiance to the Savior. So Father, you lived in an area very similar to ours and you know what it's like to confront a culture head on. The Father, give us the wisdom and the humility to walk rightly so that we can glorify you in all things. In your name we pray. Amen.